When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How long has it been since you slept? It's coming up on the seventh day. It's okay, I checked Guinness. The record's 11. Listen, Glenn, I know who he is. Who? The killer. You do? Yes. And if he gets me, I'm pretty sure you're next. Me? Why would anybody want to kill me? Don't ask. Just give me some help nailing the guy when I bring him out. Bring him out of what? My dream. How do you plan to do that? Just like I did the hat. Have a hold of the sucker when you wake me up. Wait, wait a minute. You can't bring somebody out of a dream. If I can't, then you can all relax because it's just a case of me being nuts. Yeah, well, I can save you the trouble. You're nutty as a fruitcake. I love you anyway. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which flick we choose for each episode, we'll have a lot of fun sharing our memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Horror movies have been around since the late 1800s, yet not all of them are as remembered as fondly as others. In 1984, horror master Wes Craven introduced moviegoers to not only one of the most iconic horror movies of the decade, but one of the most iconic figures in horror's history. So start a fresh pot of coffee, refill your caffeine pills, and whatever you do, don't fall asleep. As Ron West and I discuss A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. So welcome in, everybody. Glad to have you on this episode. I'm your host, Tim Williams, and I'm once again glad to have my good friend and horror film aficionado, Mr. Ron West. How you doing, Ron? One, two, Freddy's coming for <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, Tim. Uh, how about you? Pur- good. I purposely did not do that for my introduction because I didn't. I was like, that's too easy. That's too easy. <laughs> well, I'm not above taking taking the cheap way out. So. Right. No, no, it's good. Yep. So um, I will start this episode by saying this was not the intended movie that Ron and I were originally going to discuss. <laughs> originally, because this is falling on holiday weekend when it gets released, we were going to continue our Halloween tradition. Last year, we did Halloween 2. We we're going to go with Halloween 3, The Season of the Witch, which is either the most hated <laughs> or disliked, or as some people think, it's one of their favorite Halloween uh, movies. But uh, Ron, I had not seen it before. Ron did not have fond memories of it, and it, he watched it a couple weeks ago, and he texted me, he's like, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> my, my memories were correct, and right. now I have even worse memories of them. Yeah, season three, the everywhere we read when you and I were reading about the movies, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, but it's kind of developed a cult following. Well, I don't know who this is because I've never seen or heard anyone or read anyone other than people saying, Oh, it has a cult following. I don't Mm -hmm. know any cult followers that actually like that movie. It is a terrible movie in a lot of different ways. And we could have reviewed that one, but we decided to, Hey, let's switch it and, and, and do one that. Yeah. uh, a little bit more fun. So, yeah. So then I watched Season of the Witch and I text Ron. I said, I don't want to talk about this movie. Let's do something else. And so that's what we're doing. So we switched it to Nightmare on Elm Street, which I have said in like every other horror episode we've done. I was like, you know, the only series that I was a fan of as a young teenager, you know, middle schooler was Nightmare on Elm Street. So I was excited to go and go back and watch this. And I just, well, we'll talk about that anyway. So, all right, let's jump right in, Ron. When did you see Nightmare on Elm Street for the very first time? Oh, I, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street in the movies. Um, 
but Nightmare on Elm Street was a little different. And I, I do remember this was the mid eighties. I want to say I saw it over the Christmas break. Yeah. Cause yeah. It, it came out in it, November. It, yeah. Well, that makes sense. It was, um, a little bit different. There was kind of a slow build with, mm-hmm. with Nightmare on Elm Street, as I recall. It wasn't, you know, this movie's releasing today and we all have to go. Um, and then, of course, Thanksgiving, you know, at that age, you know, we, everyone goes to visit grandmother. So we're not going to the movies and stuff. So I think it was it was there, I'm pretty confident it was during the Christmas break, because by then it had been out for about a month. And mm-hmm. there was quite the build of, oh, this movie, you got to see this movie. Oh, it's scary. It's also a little funny mm-hmm. um, and it's creepy. And so I went to uh, see it in the movie theater. Uh, really. Uh, really liked it and was scared by it, but not scared. Like, like, like when I saw Halloween, you know, looking around the corners of your house, turning on lights, <laughs> make sure there's no shadows or anything. It, it yeah. Come. Yeah. Uh, I really wasn't overly concerned about falling asleep and something attacking me in, 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 uh, in my, in my dreams. But um, so it's a di- kind of a different kind of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what about you? I know you didn't go to the movies, so these were more like uh, rentals for you by the time yeah. you uh, saw them, right? Yeah, we were talking about this, I think, the other day. I don't remember if I saw this one first or if I saw one of the sequels first, but I know I saw it on VHS. I didn't see any of these in the theater that I can remember. Um, and I can't say that I've seen every single one in the series because um, as, as it kept going, I got older and just kind of wasn't as big a fan of the of the horror movies as I got older as a, you know, later in my teens or whatever. But, but I remember seeing this one, this wasn't like Friday the 13th or Halloween where I saw one of the sequels and never saw the original. So I remember seeing this uh, for the first time as a kid, but I, I had to have rented it. Um, But I can't, like I said, I can't remember if I saw it after seeing the third or the fourth one, or if I saw it, you know, shortly, like within the first, well, because the sequel came out, almost a year after the first one. So are pretty close to right. about, you know, pretty close to a year, year between. So more than likely I saw the sequel first and then went back and watched the, the first one. When was the last time you saw it before we watching it for the podcast? Uh, in its entirety, uh, it had been, uh, I'd say probably seven years or so um, mm-hmm. when my daughter became a, was a teenager and wanted to start watching some, some scary movies that were, you know, not, too scary not mm-hmm. going to be dramatic nightmare <laughs> on elm street was was one of the ones that we watched uh with her we also just on a side note watched children of the corn uh my, and my wife and i were afraid to watch it because we were so traumatized <laughs> right. and then we watched it and uh and maybe if, when you're 10 or something and you watch that movie it was terrifying we watched right. it as adults we were like this is not scary yeah. at all yeah and and my daughter was like y'all were scared of this this is not this it's not good and it's also not scary <laughs> yeah different perspective uh i guess but mm-hmm. uh so i had watched it with with her and uh and she said kind of the same thing that she thought it was good she liked it and i think she has watched some of the sequels since but the, she didn't find it particularly scary, scary. Yeah. Now, now she's 21 now almost 22 and she likes all those weird conjuring movies and mm-hmm. children crawling on the ceiling and upside down <laughs> and all that. I, I can't do all that stuff, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, she, she, um, so that's, that's the last time I had watched it all the way through. But what about you? My wife and I watched it two years ago and it was around this time. We we're just like, Oh, we, I think it might've been right after we watched Halloween with you guys. And we were okay. just kind of like, Hey, let's, you know, we're kind of, let's, what's another scary movie we were watching as a kid. And we were talking about this one. And I was like, man, I haven't seen that in a long time. So we, we rewatched the first one and then we rewatched or we watched the remake they did in like 2010. And we're like, yeah, the original was much better. Uh, yeah. The remake was had, very unnecessary. Had Tyra seen the original? She had. Yeah. Pretty sure she yeah. had. So it was still somewhat fresh in my mind watching it this time, but it had been, you know, a couple of years. And since I've watched so many other scary movies the last couple of weeks and I just watched, we talked about, I watched, rewatched Halloween from 2018 and watched the new Halloween kills the night before. So it was uh, at horror on the brain. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's jump into story origin and pre-production. And of course, if you have Netflix, this was one of the topics of one of the new episodes of the show, the movies that made us. So definitely check that out. They'll go into much more detail on some of these things than I'm going to. And it's a cool show. And of course they did Friday the 13th, Halloween, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. So uh, worth checking out. They're not a sponsor, but Netflix, give me a call. I'll be happy to uh, 
love to have love to have you as a sponsor going forward. So well, let's jump right in. Nightmare on Elm Street contains many biographical elements from director Wes Craven's childhood. The basis of the film was inspired by several newspaper articles printed in the Los Angeles Times in the 70s about refugees who, after fleeing to the United States because of war and genocide in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, suffered disturbing nightmares and refused to go to sleep. Some of the men actually died in their sleep soon after. Medical authorities called the phenomenon Asian Death Syndrome. The condition afflicted men between the ages of 19 and 57 and was believed to be sudden unexplained death syndrome or Brugada syndrome or both. Other sources contribute this inspiration for the film to be a 1968 student film project made by Craven students at Clarkson University. The student film parodied contemporary horror films and was filmed along Elm Street in Potsdam, New York. So uh, it was interesting about that, you know, he got this inspiration from something that was somewhat true. And I, I like the explanation they gave in the movies that made us about how basically for the cult, for the them culturally, when they would have, anytime they had a nightmare, they would wake up from the nightmare and either write it down or do a painting, try to, they were trying to uh, cleanse themselves of the evil and the nightmare. But then when they were brought to the United States, that wasn't, it wasn't culturally what you did. And because they held it in that fear kind of like paralyzed them to the point where they didn't want to go to sleep. And then just, I guess, oh, sleep deprivation or just being so afraid in your sleep, you, you died, which is kind of, creepy in its in its own in its own right so yeah I, I didn't i was not familiar with that backstory at all until i read it when we watched this and i, mm-hmm. I found that fascinating that that was part of the the origin story yeah uh, you know and, and and usually the best you know best kind of things like this so there's some piece of truth that they're they're right pulling yeah it definitely that. it definitely adds to the uh the scary element uh, of it because it's if there's anything that you feel like is embedded in some sort of truth then it makes it it makes it possible, which makes it even more scary than just something that's so outrageously that could never happen uh, kind of thing. It, it take you know that doesn't really seem to scare scare you too much. So let's talk a little bit about Freddy Krueger or Fred Krueger as he's uh, named in this one. I know you text me when you're watching. It's like I never realized that uh, they called him Fred in this one. Yeah, well, it's written on the beginning of the credits that yeah. you know Robert as Fred Krueger, but even he calls himself Freddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in the song when they're singing it, they, oh, yeah, they say Freddy's, Freddy. Freddy's coming for I'm you. not sure anyone actually calls him Fred in the movie, but that's what's in the opening credits. Yeah, I think Nancy does when she when she's showing the hat to her mom, and she's like, "It even has his name in it." Here it is, who's Fred Krueger? So she says, okay. I, "I noticed that time that she she called him Fred, and she didn't call him Freddy." So, um, but yeah, but of course after this, he's never called Fred again. That as far as I know, it's pretty much Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger is drawn from Craven's early life. One night, a young Craven saw an elderly man walking on the side path outside the window of his home. The man stopped to glance at to glance at a startled Craven and walked off. This served as inspiration for Krueger. Initially, Fred Krueger was intended to be a child molester, but Craven eventually characterized him as a child murderer to avoid being accused of exploiting a spate of highly publicized child molestation cases that occurred in California around the time of production of the film. On Freddy's nature, Craven states that, in a sense, Freddy stands for the worst of parenthood and adulthood. He's the dirty old man, the nasty father, and the adult who wants children to die rather than to help them. He's the boogeyman and the worst fear of children. He's the adult that's out to get them, perverted father figure that wants to destroy and is able to get them at their most vulnerable moment, which is when they're asleep. And I know there's, there's, and, and not to belabor this point, but, you know, mm-hmm. even uh, England has has talked about part of the backstory of Freddy Krueger is um, children, teenagers who are kind of abandoned and neglected in their own right. Their parents are, and there's, you know, there's a whole thing about, you know, obviously of, of you know, how Freddy came to be and, and mm-hmm. the people who killed him and then they grow up. But even as the movie continues, the parents, because it's always teenagers that he's going after, it's not mm-hmm. adults. And, um, and the parents are always alcoholics and are addicted to pills mm-hmm. and kind of, abandoning and neglectful of the children and those are the teenagers that he that he goes after so um there's a lot of of uh things to explore there i guess in the the psychological yeah of fred krueger yeah for sure in writing it wes craven began writing the screenplay around 1981 after he had finished production on swamp thing in 1982 
Uh, he pitched it to several studios, but each one of them rejected it for different reasons. The first, int- <laughs> this is so funny. The first studio to show interest was Walt Disney Productions. <laughs> Although they wanted Craven to tone down the content to make it suitable for children and preteens, uh, Craven declined. Yeah, I didn't, I, I never really saw this as a Disney property at all. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to draw a. Any kind of parallel to a Disney. I mean, what's the, the, the closest scar? He, he, he reaches out with his claws. Yeah. Kills. In the hand. Right, right. And then throws him from the cliff. Uh, but usually the Disney villains are, you know, not physically carrying a weapon and. and right. And killing have, people with. Or have a witchcraft. burned face. Yeah. Yeah. Witchcraft and voodoo and mm-hmm. uh, different things. But yeah. Okay. Disney. Um, but I mean, wise decision on Craven. To, I think a lot of people having a property like that and Disney saying they want to get involved. Like, okay, you want me to change that? Okay, I'll do that to it. Right, but, right. But standing pat because this ends up an independent film, right? Yeah, yeah. So another studio Craven pitched to was Paramount Pictures, which passed on the project due to its similarity to Dreamscape that came out in 1984. That's one that I've read a lot about, but I don't think I've ever actually seen. So I'm not sure what the similarities are on that one. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's the similarities are just that people dying in their dreams. Okay, but it's, yeah, not, it's a vil- not a villain that's chasing them in that sense. Not the uh, there might have been, but I mean, not you know someone with the with a you know Wolverine hand who's uh, <laughs> stabbing them and, and and killing them. Right. But if you didn't wake up from your from you know your dream, you could be killed. Universal Studios also passed Craven, who was in desperate personal and financial straits during this period later framed the company's rejection letter on the wall of his office, which, which reads in its December 14, 1982 print, quote, we have reviewed the script you've submitted a Nightmare on Elm Street. Unfortunately, the script did not receive an enthusiastic enough response for us to go forward at this time. However, when you have a finished product, please get in touch and we'd be delighted to screen it for a possible negative pickup. <laughs> okay. So... Finally, the fledging and independent New Line Cinema Corporation, which had up to this point only distributed films, agreed to produce. During filming, New Line's distribution deal for the film fell through for two weeks, and it was unable to pay its cast and crew. Although New Line has gone on to make bigger and more profitable films, A Nightmare on Elm Street was its first commercial success, and the studio is often referred to as the house that Freddie built. Yeah, rightfully so. I mean, that's that's where the first place I saw it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. When I see that, when I see New Line Cinema, the first yeah. thing I <laughs> yeah, very cool. So they definitely, definitely left his mark in that in that aspect. So they, they should have a little shot of like Robert Ingham, like every movie that they do, just like somewhere <laughs> in the eating a scone at a table somewhere right. there, you know, just a little homage. Which I think is funny because in this one, it's it's a not, it's a totally different New Line Cinema. It's like that red screen with the or the red backdrop with the uh, with the letters, which was very. VHS direct to video type of uh, intro uh, that I remember from back then. So, absolutely. And now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. All right, well, let's jump into casting. Uh, we'll talk about some of the main, basically the main cast, and then a few, I got two little cameos I want to mention as we get into this. We'll see if uh, Ron picked up on these. So uh, actor David Warner was originally cast to play Freddie. Makeup tests were done, but he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. Replacing him was difficult at first. Kane Hodder, who would later be known for playing fellow slasher icon Jason Voorhees, was among those who Wes Craven talked with about the role of Freddie. 
According to Hodder, he said, I had a meeting with Wes Craven about playing a character he had developed called Freddy Krueger. At the time, Wes wasn't sure what kind of person he wanted for the role, so I had as good of a shot as anybody else. He was initially thinking of a big guy for the part, and he was also thinking of somebody who had real burn scars. But obviously, he changed his whole line of thinking and went with Robert England, who's smaller. I would have loved to play the part, but I do think Wes made the right choice. And I would agree. I, 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 would, I could see him because you've got Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees and even Leatherface uh, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all big brooding figures. And Freddie is not that at all. <laughs> no, he's, there's a lankiness and mm-hmm. a, um, more of like a flexibility to him and, and, and some of the ways that he runs and his gait and different things in the mm-hmm. movies. Yeah, so, so definitely a completely different kind of uh, style to the, to the bad guy here. So Craven was indeed in search of a big giant man originally, but casting director Annette Benson had talked Craven into seeing England about the role after England had auditioned for National Lampoon's class reunion previously. Before England's agent at the time, Joe Rice sent him to the casting office. Rice's friend, Rhett Tomfum, recommended England act like, act rat-like, weasel-like, in quotes, adding that when we read about abusers and molesters in the newspaper, they're not big, hulking men, but weasels. I thought he should go in and play it like that, and it worked. And I think, you know, England talks about the story about how he put some cigarette ash under his eyes to make his eyes look darker and took some oil from his car and slicked his hair back to make him look kind of greasy and oily. So, uh, so it seemed to have seemed to have worked for his audition for sure. I'll, I'll let you talk about what Robert England was, or thought he was well known about before this. It was a TV show that was on at the time. So it was V correct. Yeah. Was that yeah. The show? So yeah. Uh, V is a, a television show. It was kind of a, it was, it was a television show in the, in the uh, mid eighties mm-hmm. that came out. Uh, it was kind of a big deal. It was one of those things that it was, it was just plugged mercilessly it's mm-hmm. about aliens coming to earth and living among us. And we're all kind of getting along and working. Like we know they identify themselves, you know, we're, we're, we're eventually anyway, but they're, they're really kept wanting to take over. And we're all working together. And it was, you know, just really great ratings. And then just like died off really quick. Like the yeah, show yeah. kind of died. It, it hung around for a little while, but, but Robert England had this real goofy role. He was complete comic <laughs> relief. Right. He was, right. He was like a janitor on the show, and whenever he came in, he's pushing a trash can, and it's like, hey, you know, like they needed something, some levity, something funny uh, mm-hmm. to happen. I mean, it was just he was just like complete comedy, and so he goes from that to, you know, <laughs> to the, the the nightmare villain Freddy Krueger, right? Uh, back to back, you know, things that he he did as as an actor. It was just hilarious. Yeah. That that is I mean, that shows his range, but uh, it is funny because if people recognize, well, putting on the makeup changed his appearance somewhat, so he wasn't instantly recognizable, probably. But uh, but yeah, a big a big switch for him to do that for sure. But yeah, yeah, I think V was like a it was a mini series that was like made got huge ratings as a mini series, and I think what you said was right when they when it's when they tried to make an actual television series based on the mini series, it didn't it didn't hold the audience that they thought it was going to. So once again, Hollywood tries to, you know, cash in on a, on a big ratings thing and it doesn't pan out for him. So next on the casting list is Nancy Craven said he wanted someone very non Hollywood for the role of Nancy. And he believed Heather Langenkamp met his quality. Langenkamp who had pre-appeared in several commercials in a TV film had taken time off from her studies at Stanford to continue acting. Eventually she landed the role of Nancy Thompson after an open audition beating out more than 200 actresses. Langenkamp was already known to Annette Benson as she had auditioned for Night of the Comet and The Last Starfighter previously, losing out to Catherine Mary Stewart at both occasions. Uh, Demi Moore, Courtney Cox, Tracy Gold, and Jennifer Grey have all been rumored to have auditioned for Nightmare on Elm Street, but Benson definitely ruled out Moore and Cox also being unsure of Gold and Grey. Langenkamp returned as Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors in 1987, and also played a fictionalized version of herself in Wes Craven's New Nightmare in 1994. So, right. Remember that one? There were no separate auditions for the characters of Tina and Nancy. All actresses who auditioned for one of the two female roles read for the role of Nancy and upon potentially being called back were mixed with other actresses trying to find a pair that had chemistry. Amanda Weiss was among those switched to Tina after a callback. 
Wes Craven decided immediately upon meeting Weiss and Langenkamp that this was the duo he wanted. Craven then mixed the duo with auditioners for the male teenage roles, trying to find actors who had chemistry with both Wise and Langenkamp. Uh, this was a funny story about Amanda Weiss. She was handing out candy at her mom's house on the Halloween following the film's release and was surprised to see so many trick-or-treaters dressed as Freddy. She eventually told one of them that she played teen in the movie, but he didn't believe her. <laughs> yeah, that would be, an, I mean, if you're just trick-or-treating and someone's like, hey, I was in this movie, but yeah, right. okay. Look, I live in the same way that I do. Okay, right. Yeah, <laughs> but I would think as a kid, if a kid's dressed as Freddy, they, they know who the character is. They probably didn't see the movie or uh, really knew. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. The six-year-old dressed like a princess at your front door. <laughs> <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Right, right. So uh, good casting, you think? I mean, we both have our no. thoughts about Langenkamp. <laughs> no. Not even going to pretty it up. No, I'm not. I thought both of them were pretty bad. Langenkamp is at least a little bit memorable. The yeah. other one is completely forgettable and wash, washes out in the in the movie. Uh, and Langenkamp, I, I just, I think she's trying, mm-hmm. but she's just not that good. It, a lot of times in these roles, when, when we hear it and we see it and we think and we hear that all these other people audition, it's so hard to picture somebody else in this role that's kind of an iconic role. I could picture every one of those actresses that you named <laughs> that you know, Courtney Cox and Tracy Gold. I mean, who's had who had no movie career. We know from television sitcoms. Right. I could. But I would have I would. I would like to see that movie. I would like to see this movie with Tracy Gold as, as Nancy. There you go. We'll do, we'll do a special episode. We recast on Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there's one person that you're getting ready to get. Or there's two. Robert England, of course, mm-hmm. stays. Uh, because now I would have a real hard time seeing anybody else as Freddie. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, you're going to get to uh, uh, a young actor who's in this movie in a second that you have to leave. Because I do remember even then people being like uh, or the girls in class being uh, who's that guy? Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, not in a whole lot, but. Yep. Well, that's who we're going to next. So let's talk about Glenn, who was played by Johnny Depp, who was another unknown. when He was cast initially accompanying his friend Jackie Earl Haley, who went on to play Freddie in the 2010 remake to the audition. Right. Depp wound, out, wound up being cast in the part of Glenn. According to Depp, the role was really written as a big, blonde, beach jock football player guy, far from his own appearance. But Wes Craven's daughters picked Depp's headshot from a set he showed them. He basically got, the, got it because his Wes Craven's daughters thought he was, quote unquote, dreamy. Yeah, well, the um, and on the um, movies that made us Nightmare on Elm Street, the actresses talk about the uh, yeah, was it difficult to have him on set? <laughs> right. Uh, and he is a little guy, but he's not much bigger than the, the girls. The other guy in the movie is significantly um, uh, larger. And this is what Johnny Depp goes from what this to then 21 Jump Street. Uh, yeah, I want to say I think I think I think Jump Street helped them some because I think it had it was started beginning to air around the same time the movie came out. So he was unknown when he filmed it. But by the time it made the theaters, like, oh, that's the guy from 20 Jump Street, which was a big hit its first season. So uh, I can see it definitely worked in Nightmare Nightmare on Street's favor to have a true up and coming teen heartthrob star in the role. How, so. how great would it have been if in, on the in Nightmare on Elm Street if it was actually Halloween and Johnny Depp was dressed as a pirate? How fantastic! <laughs> that have been in little, 1984, uh, little foreshadowing there. Little foreshadowing of Pirates of the Caribbean. That, that would, as I was watching it, I was like, well, it's not really Halloween in the movie. No, but if it was, just how fantastic would that have been for Johnny Depp to come walking up dressed like a pirate? Or if one of his dreams he was a pirate, or you just saw a pirate in one of his dreams, that would have been funny. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna check like some of the old. 21 Jump Street stuff to see if there's a Halloween episode to see if he ever <laughs> just as a pirate. A little 21 Jump Street. I mean, gave us Johnny Depp, gave us Holly Robinson. Yeah, uh, two names or Holly Robinson Pete. Now two names that we still know from that little that little small cast. Yeah, that was when Fox was just starting as a for you for you kids out there. Fox used to be was not <laughs> one of the main networks. Only three it was ABC, NBC, and CBS. And Fox said, "Hey, we want to we want to hang out with the big boys," and so. They uh they took their shot with some shows and twenty one. They had yeah. married with children and living and, color. 
Living Color, The Simpsons, and Twenty One Jump Street. Like, yeah. like that was the, the. I mean, they had a whole bunch. A lot didn't work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot. Some, of, some that were good that didn't work. Yeah. So, oh, memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, casting director Annette Benson states they did in fact offer the part of Glenn to uh, Charlie Sheen, but he passed on it due to his agent demanding twice the weekly wage of a thousand dollars for Sheen, which New Line Cinema did not consider themselves to have the budget for. I don't know if I needed Charlie Sheen in this movie <laughs> at all. Well, we we in general we need less Charlie Sheen in, in movies, but <laughs> uh, but for the little bit of time that Glenn is on on the scene, Charlie Sheen would have would have done fine in the in the role, I think. Yeah. But it's just fun that in, in this movie um that you know Johnny Depp got to play a small part. I mean, it's not like the Leprechaun movie with Jennifer Aniston, which was a crappy movie <laughs> that no one should ever watch. And, and, but now anytime you see it, it has a big picture of her yeah, on the front. Yeah. You become a major star in this little small movie, but here's a movie that is a movie that will last the test of time. And, mm-hmm. and, and then an actor that goes on and has a small part. So. Yeah. But like you said, he's not in it really that much. So he's not, he's not, not he's not the main character. Even he has, he's in the relationship with the main character, but he doesn't have that much screen time, which uh, Wes Craven has said that Johnny Depp wasn't very confident about his own performance and that the inexperienced actor needed some reassuring during filming. So, which I could see being an up and coming actor, he probably was a lot of self doubt sure. in what he was doing. So, yeah, I mean, because he's playing a teenager, but he's probably what, 20, 21 or something at, at the time. Um, yeah, I think so. I don't remember. I might be in the notes somewhere about how old they were. I, I should have wrote it down, but I think they were. Oh, he was like, he, yeah, he was in his late 20s. I think he was like 28, 29 at that point. And uh, Langenkamp and Weiss were like 19 or 20. So, uh, no, Johnny Depp was born in 63. So he was 21 okay. in 84 okay. when this came. Gotcha. So maybe they were all the same. So I, that, okay. So I, I stand corrected. I thought, well, that's why I said I probably, I thought I had in the notes, but I didn't. So he, um, you know, but any young actor, I mean, all young actors want to go on to be, you know, Marlon Brando and, mm-hmm. and you know, and everything, but you don't know if you're going to be. So, you know, it stands the reason that he'd be a little, little unsure of himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, good death scene, though. Oh, yeah. Bed. <laughs> Which they said there's a deleted scene or a scene that they ended up scrapping where he was supposed to come up out of the bed at the end but they scrapped it for whatever reason. Well, I think the room was completely destroyed based on the stunt, but uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get there. So moving on along with casting. So Rod played by Nick Corey, who is now known as Jesu Garcia, uh, got a start on the television, television version of fame. This was his feature film debut and went on to co-star when other eighties flicks like gotcha with Anthony Edwards in 1985 and wildcats with Goldie Hawn in 1986 which uh, is one of my favorites early uh, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. Golden we need Hunt. to add that to the, to the schedule. We need yes. to do. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, Nick Corey has said that the production of nightmare was difficult for him. He was dealing with depression due to recent homelessness by snorting heroin in the bathroom between takes in 2014. He revealed that he was high on heroin during the scene with Langenkamp in the jail cell. Langenkamp said his eyes were watery and they weren't focused. I thought, wow, he's given the best performance of his life. No, he was just so high. He couldn't, couldn't think straight. So uh, interesting. You want to take a deep dive in the life of Nick Corey. Uh, go for it. I didn't want to put too much in here, but he's he's still acting and still doing things, but he has a very interesting life now. <laughs> Marge, or Nancy's mother, was dark-haired singer Ronnie Blakely, widely recognized for her trenchant performance as country superstar Barbara Jean in the highly praised Robert Altman's film Nashville from 1975. Actually, she and Lily Tomlin were nominated for an Academy Award in the category of Best Supporting Actress. Both of them lost. Her role was considered loosely based on the country icon Loretta Lynn, a singer whose own success came at the cost of exhaustion, loneliness, injury, bitter rivalries, exploitation, fickle audiences, obsessed fans, and an overbearing husband manager. Renee performed several of her own songs as Barbara Jean, including Dues and My Idaho Home. The film score received a Grammy nomination. So I, I know I talked a lot about Nashville, but that's because that's really the only other movie that you probably know her from besides this movie. Uh, she didn't really do much after this, but 
she was interesting in the role for sure. Uh, and by interesting, you mean not good? I mean, I mean, she seemed the most out of place. <laughs> definitely seemed out of place. I thought this was bad and and i just she's just not a good actress there's a reason why we haven't seen her in a whole lot of other things and i know right. you just said she's nominated for an award she mm-hmm. caught lightning in a bottle is all i can say yeah we'll, yeah one, one hit wonder there i don't know what it is but um here in 1984 she's she's playing this role which tells you there weren't a lot of a lot of other roles out no. there yeah that's her. yeah that's a and, pretty much a decade later from when she was in nashville right. so but but the parents in the again the parents in the Nightmare on Elm Street roles that this she's playing what those parents are they're always detached don't pay attention to their kids you know like I said mm-hmm. sometimes they're they're alcoholics sometimes they're 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 drug addicts mm-hmm. and, uh, so she definitely has that you know detached um, uh, uh, persona with with Nancy and one of the I would guess we would call it a death scene the worst. <laughs> which is not her, but the worst right. death scene possibly ever in a horror movie where she gets sucked back through spoiler back through the little small window in the door, which is obviously a, <laughs> a, 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 a dummy or a doll yeah. or what. Yeah. It's, uh, it's I, I, I remember being in the movie and when that happened, everybody laughing. Yeah. Cause it's <laughs> terrible. Uh, but even her, but you know, that, that's her, you know, I guess that's technically her second death scene. Her first death scene wasn't much better when Freddie who's on fire is on top of her. And then right. you have this shot of like this totally automated skeleton with its hand raising, like it's some attraction at universal studios or whatever. And then it just sinks into the bed or whatever. I was like, that was such a weird, that scene just, it's a head scratcher for me. So. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's probably a few of those on here, but yeah. limited, limited budget. And yeah, um, yeah, they're trying to make things do that. There are a couple things that they got lucky with, like watching the, uh, you know, movies that made us when the stunt guy lights himself on fire and then he's running up and down the, <laughs> yeah. Stairs oh, yeah, yeah. the basement. They said, we weren't expecting him to do that at all. We thought he was just going to kind of walk to the bottom stairs and then fall down and we put mm-hmm. him out. He's running up and down and, and catching everything on fire along the way. Right. Right. We're like, we're like, wow, great scene. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, and Craven's like, Thank you for being in this movie. Thank uh, you for being in this movie. Yeah. All the stunt guy. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it's so funny to watch that now because uh, you know, the if you watch any of these kind of things, you know the 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 cue, the person who's on fire can't say, Hey, put me out. So the cue mm-hmm. is always Fall just down. lay yeah. uh, lay down moving. flat mm-hmm. and then they'll put you out. And so watching it now when he does that on the stairs and you can see him very clearly saying hey put me out now right right i'll never be able to watch and watch that scene now and not know that. <laughs> okay mm-hmm. i've had enough okay. yeah yeah exactly all right moving on to the second parent lieutenant thompson nancy's father john saxon who had <sighs> top billing <laughs> from 1969 to 1972 he was a star of the television series the bold ones the new doctors playing the brilliant surgeon theodore stewart uh, a black belt in karate, Saxon appeared as Roper Enter the Dragon in 1973, which is probably one of his most well-known roles. He continued to play a wide variety of roles on television and motion pictures with key roles in 1974's slasher classic Black Christmas, this one in the 80s, and the 1990s self-referential horror films New Nightmare in 94 and From Dust Till Dawn in 96. So, uh, Saxon... Yeah, go ahead. Into the Dragon is absolutely his most famous role. Right. He, every guy, especially of a certain age, knows Bruce. No Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, and John Saxon is in that as the white martial art guy. Mm-hmm. There's only a handful of actors who were martial artists at the time. That you right, know, they could, right. Yeah, you, could, you can go grab Chuck Norris. You can gra- grab John Saxon, mm-hmm. and and he is actually act. There's not a lot of people actually acting in enter the dragon it's one of the it's, it's the it's, it's the most well-known bruce lee movie of all time and most seen bruce lee movie of all time and um and a fantastic movie i still like to watch it quite frankly uh but he's one of the few people actually acting uh in the movie um but he's also like bruce lee throws a kick and his leg can kind of go up in like a 180 degree motion mm-hmm. and john saxon throws a kick and he looks like 
modern day Ralph Macchio on Cobra Kai where the kid gets <laughs> two feet off the ground because that's as high as he can get his leg up. Right. And it's, so it's just kind of funny to see the two different, you know, someone at their peak and then, mm-hmm. oh yeah, here's this guy that, that went to a dojo long enough until they gave him a, a, a black belt. Um, he's okay. I mean, he doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. No, he's the no. our unbelieving father mm-hmm. who, who, you know, plays the part in, in uh, Freddie's original death, um, uh, you know, as a child serial killer. Um, so he doesn't get a whole lot to do. He just does what John Saxon does, which is look real stern. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's about it. Um, I could see again, a hundred different people in his role, but it really doesn't matter because that character doesn't have much to do with it. Right. Right. He doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's not that important of a role for sure. So, uh, speaking of other unimportant roles, there's two cameos or I would call them cameos because they're blinking. You'll miss some uh, parts, but they were faces that I recognized and I had to kind of, I am to be to find out who they were. So one is Lynn Shay, the sister of producer Robert Shay, appears in a small role as the teacher in the classroom when uh, Nancy has her nightmare of seeing her friend in the body bag. Uh, but Lynn Shay has appeared in several horror films, specifically the Insidious series. She has starred in almost every New Line horror film in various roles, garnering her the title of Scream Queen. I probably recognize her most as... Uh, the old lady in there's something about Mary. <laughs> if you've ever seen uh, that movie from the, I have, but it's been so long since I've seen it. I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't recognize. The, the interesting thing about it is if you, if you pull up a picture of her, she has a very like lovely face. I mean, she's, she's not, you know, young, but she looks, she has a very youthful face. And she said in every movie that she's in, they make her look so old and like decrepit that when she takes her makeup off, no one knows that it's her. So, but you're right. There's a, yeah. I'm looking at a picture of her right now. And there's something about Mary where they, they put all this makeup on her mm-hmm. to make her look old. And I mean, she is an older lady in real life, but she's, she's lovely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, she, that's funny. And you would not recognize her as, <laughs> as that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so this second one is just for you, Ron, because I know how much you love this movie. But uh, the doctor at Nancy's sleep study is played by Charles Fleischer. Do you know who Charles Fleischer is? I cannot place the name. He is best known as the voice of Roger Rabbit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I would, I would not have. Uh, I was not a huge Roger Rabbit fan. I, so I know. That's why I'm messing with I, you. I, uh, I would not have, have gotten that. Yeah. But didn't Fleischer do, now that you say that, since he's doing animation aren't there some cartoons and things that he he probably has i mean he's done some other acting like if you've ever seen david fincher's the zodiac or zodiac um, which i i watched somewhat recently he's in that he's a very creepy character in that movie as well so he's i mean he has some other acting credits but that's that you know voicing roger rabbit is one of the things he's most known for so but uh feel free to do an imdb deep dive on him as well but uh i thought that was interesting when i saw him i was like hey that looks like that guy i know so Oh, uh, he did some, he did, uh, he has a voice on Polar Express, on Rango, mm-hmm. uh, Dinosaur Story. Um, so a few, a few different things. All right. Well, let's talk about iconic scenes, favorite scenes, which usually when you come to these type of movies, we'll probably talk about the most memorable kills or death scenes because that's, those are usually the most iconic of the horror movies. So, uh, so what, which, which kill is most iconic for you? Johnny Depp getting sucked down into the bed was always the the scene of this movie to me the most yeah. iconic yeah uh, the iconic one my favorite scene just because it made me laugh there's a, a scene uh, where Freddie is chasing Nancy you know and it's in an alley and there's dark mm-hmm. and you can see both of them in the shot she's running away she's a terrible runner uh, yeah. by the way um, and he's doing just this weird elongated stride you know <laughs> like legs legs not like moving forward, like they're moving sideways, like mm-hmm. almost like crab walk run thing. Right, and, right. And as he was doing it now and when watching it, just like, why was that the decision? That's, that's how this guy <laughs> will run. And he's never in a hurry to catch them as part of the, the yeah. game. Oh, yeah, yeah. Linger. 
linger because guess what? If I don't kill them tonight, they're going to fall asleep tomorrow. I'll be back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let them be, let them be scared for a while. But that scene made me literally laugh out loud and, uh, uh, and enjoy Freddie's, Freddie's gait as he was running. But Johnny Depp uh, dying, I had forgotten how bloody yeah. the scene was the first uh, kill of uh, Nancy's friend. What's her name again? The completely forgettable one that I told you and now I've forgotten. Uh, <laughs> I've forgotten. Um, when she's up on the ceiling and and spinning all around and just blood is going everywhere. I had yeah, forgotten yeah, yeah. how bloody that scene was, which was probably a little disturbing in 1984. Oh, yeah. People, oh, yeah. Uh, people to the to the movies um so i mean that was it what about uh for you what stood out someone told me about the bed scene with uh depp like that was something that some, i remember someone telling me about before i saw it because i remember i have the distinct memory of like going oh my gosh that is you know like remembering them telling me about it and seeing it for the first time so uh but those two scenes are probably like you said are probably the most iconic i don't I think the depth scene is executed a little bit better. I mean, the her on the wall and stuff is pretty freaky. And once again, I think because we're so accustomed to like CGI and stuff now that we could see that being done a little bit better. But for the technology and, and knowing how that scene was created is what's cool about it now that it was a rotating room and, you know, it right. wasn't it wasn't all motorized. It was actually men that were moving that room. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty incredible. But it was still scary. I mean, I, I think, and I think what's interesting about that is for this, especially for this type of movie, in most of the slashes before that, the more elaborate "quote unquote" kills come more towards the end. Like usually, the first kill is not that horrific. If I'm, you know, you're more of an aficionado than I am, but you're right. You're right. Yeah. So to right. so so for this to be the first, you know, kill was 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 it was huge. Like he he. Craven did something that nobody else had done. He was like, I'm going to do this big elaborate one at the beginning, which is almost bad because by the time you get to the end, it's like they, they get a little less elaborate as it goes on. Um, so maybe that's why the later ones don't hit the same way as the, as those, those, the first one, but, but yeah, the depth being sucked into the bed and then the, the blood coming out of the bed was, was pretty freaky. And I know they said that was a nod to, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining with the blood coming out of the uh, elevator. So, uh, right. yeah, th- those those two are by far the most iconic ones for me. Um, yeah, I, I now think about the ones that didn't translate very well, which I know was its own uh, kind of story in the movies that made us, which is the scene of Nancy when she's running from Freddie into the house and she goes up the stair- staircase uh, it's very clear to see where the puddles are when you're looking at the stairs before she steps in them. Uh, and I just thought that was such a poorly uh, done. I, I, I understand the idea and how scary that could be. Like that is very dream. Like where you're trying, I've had that. I have that dream. This is my psychiatry session now. So I have dreams a lot, uh, Ron, about things. Uh, but no, uh, I've had, I've had recurring dreams where I'm trying to run very fast and I can't get my legs to move fast enough where I feel like I'm stuck in some kind of, you know, mud or sinking sand. So I get the idea. I just don't think it was executed as well as they were hoping for it to. I can, I can tell you why you're having that dream. Cause I just listened to a comedian who's about our age talk about that. And he, he said that he, you know, he really thought quicksand was going to be a bigger problem as an adult than it <laughs> yeah. be. because all these, the seventies and eighties, all these yeah. cartoons, it was all this quicksand, quicksand, quicksand. Right. You got to watch out for quicksand. Mm-hmm. It was like really, really hadn't popped up a whole lot. I really yeah. haven't had people. Yeah. And so you have that quicksand on the brain and getting stuck uh, as you're walking or, or trying to run away. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And I've done yeah. some read. I've done some reading on it. It's usually it's actually anxiety. It's my anxiety of feeling that I'm stuck in an area of my life where I feel like I can't move forward. So no matter how much I try to run in my dream, I can't make any progress. So anyway. Oh, my friend is getting deep now. Okay. Yeah, well, so. we'd like to explore that further. Or should we? No, that? that, that's enough. That's enough for now. So right, I'll save it for another episode. <laughs> this week's very special episode. Tim talks about his dreams. <laughs> yeah. This will, this will be for um, when we do the um, TV shows uh, of the seventies. And when we do uh, the Bob Newhart show, we we'll, we'll explore, uh, <laughs> you know, table psychology with, uh, with Bob Newhart. There you go. 
And now, these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. So I was going to mention when you're talking about Freddy's walk, how crazy it was. So I actually did have this on my notes. In various interviews, Robert England stated that Freddy's walk and mannerisms were inspired partly by his costume and look at him, looking at himself in the mirror. He said when he put on the fedora, he thought of old gangster movies and decided to give Freddy a swagger akin to famous gangster movie actor James Cagney. He also said that because the full glove with the real metal knives, as opposed to the stunt glove with fake knives for safety, was so heavy, he found himself unintentionally dropping his right shoulder due to the weight. So he equated the stance with a gunslinger who had a pistol and a holster on his hip. And he also talked about how when he walked sideways, it was because he was trying to mimic how a surfer is on a surfboard. So I don't understand how that was in the, the part of... Well, yeah, that was so important, but... The uh, the gunslinger and the swagger thing, I was like, yeah, I could see that uh, him him kind of using that as well. So, yeah, well, when he was running behind her in that alley, he was like a like a chimpanzee running. <laughs> yeah, what it made me think of, and uh, that has nothing to do with James Cagney. So, no, no. All right, well, we'll talk a little bit about some scenes and trivia, and then we'll uh, see if anything else comes up. So, here's one of the uh, another big scene that I I, forgot, I almost forgot about. So, another iconic scene for me is the bathtub scene. Uh, which was pretty freaky as well. Yeah, those those knives coming out of the bathtub. So, um, and they did a good job of explaining this on the movies that made us as well. So, uh, it was accomplished with a special bottomless tub. Uh, the tub was put in a bathroom set that was built over a swimming pool. During the underwater sequence, Heather Langenkamp was replaced with a stunt woman. But yeah, so the bathtub scene was also pretty pretty scary as a kid too. So. Yeah, because that water you couldn't see the bottom, and then that that hand coming mm-hmm. coming up. But um, yeah, a little creepy. She was rocking that uh that good old eighties uh, tub pillow. And I remember <laughs> my mom had one like that when I was little. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I, I was a kid of like, you going to sleep in there? Why do you have a pillow for the tub? And now, and I saw it, I was like, oh, because when I'm taking a bath recently, I'm like I wish I had something for my head, and <laughs> they're just not as popular anymore, I guess. So. Well, there find, we go. find one of those on Amazon. Christmas ideas for anyone listening for Tim Williams. <laughs> I'm going to get bombarded with tub pillows. 17 tub pillows to just surround the entire, right. no matter which direction he loads. He's not feeling cold porcelain. Someone's going to put it in red and green with Freddie's uh, glove on the backside so I can remember it's Nightmare on Elm Street pillow. Oh, that'd be great to have it on like a little spring and then <laughs> just all of a sudden in the bath it, it released and popped up. Right, right. So this was interesting. About halfway through the film, when Nancy's trying to stay awake, a scene from Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead appears on the television. Craven decided to include the scene because Raimi had featured uh, Hills Have Eyes, a movie that Craven had made in 1977, poster in The Evil Dead. In return, Raimi featured a Freddy Krueger glove in the tool shed scene of Evil Dead 2 and later in Ash versus the Evil Dead. So that was kind of an ongoing thing with Craven and 
uh, Sam Raimi of, uh, you know, have little nods to each other's films in their, in their movies, which I thought was pretty cool. So, that um, is really cool. yeah. So speaking of, we were talking about ages earlier. So uh, in that same scene, Nancy looks in the mirror and actually laughed at this scene when I saw it. Uh, she looks in the mirror and says, my God, I look 20 years old. Uh, she was in fact 20 years old at the time of the film's release. Uh, most of the teen actors were actually in their twenties. Uh, Amanda Weiss and Johnny Depp were both well under their twenties at this point. Uh, Jesu Garcia uh, was 19, not 16, like his character is supposed to be. Yeah. She was supposed to be like 16, but she said looking 20 was meant to be ironic because as a 16 year old, she felt like 20 years old was being, was really old. So. Yeah. That was, that was funny when she said it. I'm like, Oh, I'm so old. I look 20. <laughs> um yeah, that was that was a, a good a good line. And then uh, one of my other favorite scenes is I knew this before the scene came up because I remember seeing this when I was looking at some stuff the last time I watched it, which it still made me laugh this time. So at the end, when the top of the convertible came down, it came down faster and harder than they expected, which is why they their expression was so genuine. They didn't expect it to come down as fast and hard as it did uh, when they first pulled up. So uh, I thought that was pretty funny. I thought they would have reshot that and did it again, but I guess. You know, hearing the story about that that extra ending, I don't think they were expecting to use it uh, like they did anyway. So um, it was kind of a rushed rushed project. So I never liked that that ending. Yeah, in the movies or when I watch it, just you know, the the top comes down, the the top of the the convertible is is the color of and stripes of Freddie's sweater. Like so, Freddie's a car now. I, just I, <laughs> I never like it. Just didn't make sense. Yeah, to me, things an odd. But I mean, it's a movie about a guy who kills you in, during your sleep, so it yeah. doesn't have to make sense. Well, I think it's interesting that you know, and they talk a lot about this in the in the special as well. So we won't we won't dig too deep into it. But you know, that wasn't Craven's original. He wanted a happy ending where, for he, in his mind, when Nancy says that she doesn't, she's not scared of Freddie anymore. That basically is what defeats him, which is very similar. And there were some thing, notes I said about similarities between Pennywise and. Freddy Krueger that it came out a year after uh, this movie. So was Pennywise inspired by the movie and all that kind of stuff. We won't get into those uh, conspiracy theories, but, um, but Craven wanted that to be the end that she defeated Freddy. And when she, uh, when she, at the end of the movie was supposed to be like, Oh, all of it was a dream. Her, her friends were still alive and, you know, it was a happy, happy ending. Let's all leave. But the producer, uh, Robert Shea, he didn't want that. He, he, he could see the potential of uh, a series of movies. Um, and so he wanted to make sure that Freddie was still alive. So he had different variations of uh, Freddie's hands being the ones that locked the, the, uh, the convertible piece, or it was Freddie that was actually driving when she turned and got in the car and not uh, Glenn and all those different things. They, they filmed several different endings, but um I don't know if I would have liked Craven's ending if it would have just been that simple, but I don't think this was the best execution of it either because when she comes out, it it seems too much like a fake ending because the way her and her mom are talking and you've got the fog and it looks so bright. Like it, it seems more like a dream than any other in. It seems more like a dream than in the other right. dream sequences they've had so far in the movie. So it stands out so much. You kind of knew it was, you know, it wasn't a twist ending to me because like, I mean, this is obviously a dream. So Freddie's going to come out at some point, but how is he going to do it? So. Cause that was one of the things they wanted in the movie was you didn't always know when someone was dreaming or right. not. That right. It, was, it seemed like they're awake and then they're just in the dream and you didn't know they're in the dream because mm-hmm. that, if you know that they're dreaming, maybe it cuts into it. And then, like you said, that last scene was, is obvious that it's, <laughs> that it's a, a, a dream. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not the best uh, execution, but yeah, you couldn't do. I mean, imagine if Craven had had done uh, what he wanted to do. We, we got we don't have any sequels. Of, yeah, we have this one movie, and and it would still be memorable, but it would not be what it has become. Yeah, well, Craven didn't like it so much he that he didn't want to do the sequel, and so I don't think he came back for a while back to the franchise. Yeah, it, so. was, it was a while before he came back. But he had set he had set it in motion. I mean, you know, once again, it go. They've all done that. Uh, Carpenter didn't really want to do a sequel to Halloween, and it, you know, he did a he did a, a quasi sequel with Halloween too, and then it kind of took a different shift. Same with Friday the Thirteenth. They get the engine started, and somebody else kind of drives drives the car at that point. It seems 
Right. And then in Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Freddy's not even in it. It's just about a uh, deranged uh, paper salesman who goes mm-hmm. door to door. He's not even, uh, yeah, I'm making all that up because uh, Halloween 3, Michael Myers, <laughs> Michael Myers is not in Halloween uh, 3, which is uh, one of the reasons we, the movie is terrible and we decided not to review that one. Right. But no, I did so read. Freddy Krueger is in all the Nightmare on Elm Yeah, yes. Yeah. But I did read, and we'll talk about this when we get to it, but in the second one, they weren't sure if England was going to come back. And so they cast somebody else to play Freddy when they first started filming because it was so soon after they finished the first one um, that after a few takes, they were like, this isn't going to work. We can't do this without Robert England. The guy, other guy was too stiff and uh, didn't didn't work. So they had to wait for him to get all of his uh, his agent to work out his deal for him to come back. So Yeah, because he's kind of Andy Circus before Andy Circus with the weird yeah. pop and the 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 odd gate and stuff for the role um and and again it's so funny for robert england to go from the comic character on v to nightmare on elm street we couldn't really see him in the role at first and now because robert england has done other things and whenever you see him as just robert england because he's kind of a unique looking guy he's like so out of place where you're just like (laughs) Betty kruger hand to right right to pop up like is this is this a dream in this movie or he's going to turn into Freddy? It's it's a backdoor Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. It's Robert so. England Love Boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's wrap this up. So, uh, box office and critical reception. A Nightmare on Elm Street premiered in the United States with a limited theatrical release on November 9th, nineteen eighty four, opening in one hundred and sixty five movie theaters across the country, grossing about one point two million dollars during its opening weekend. The film was considered an instant commercial success it was released into the booming home video rental market just six months later and its popularity rose even further so rotten tomatoes has it at a 95 percent on the tomato meter and an 84 percent audience score imdb has it at 7.5 out of 10 and a 76 on metacritic so i'm gonna say i'm def i'm not quite as low as imdb but it's definitely not a 95 for me i would yeah more 80s yeah, I say 84 is pretty pretty accurate for me in the audience score. So, yeah, I agree completely. The the sevens, the anything in the seventy percent that was a little too low, and nineties is a little too high. Yeah, that split the difference. But yeah, but definitely a good one. Nightmare on Elm Street, definitely a classic. Um, yeah, it's still, I mean, it's still a good good one to watch, especially this time of year and a, and a fun one. So, I'll probably watch a few of the sequels here before we get to Halloween. And um, Freddie always shows up on every on list of, you know, like best movie villains and things about yeah. oh, yeah. he'll, he'll always be on those. He's he's an iconic mm-hmm. character. Fifty years from now at Halloween, the Halloween shops will have Freddy Krueger costumes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure. He, his legacy uh, lives on for sure. So Jason Mask, Freddie Mask, and Michael Myers Mask will will live on. And in a weird way, William William Shatner as well, since he was the William Shatner. <laughs> At the shape, aka Michael Myers. Yeah, uh, but notice that uh, Jason's uh, burlap sack in uh, Friday Thirteenth Two does not show up <laughs> as a as a mask very often. It does not. It does not. It's, it's it's part three when he gets the iconic hockey mask, and that's when everything changes. And neither does the Betsy Palmer costume. Doesn't get much traction either. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just showing up like a middle aged woman in the nineteen seventies. Well, who are you? I'm the villain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Uh, Warhees from Friday the 13th. Don't you know that? So, yeah. All right, Ron, yeah. thanks for so much for being a part of this episode. Uh, it's always a good time to have you on. So glad to have you back uh, for this episode. Anything else you want to add before we wrap things up? Nope. Always a pleasure. Make sure you add Wildcats to the uh, schedule at some point in the future so we can do that. I call dibs. <laughs> uh, the uh, Goldie Hawn, Woody Harrelson, Wesley Snipes. Jaysu, uh, uh, Nipsey, Russell, yeah. Nipsey Russell. Uh, oh yeah, comedy with the with the peanut with the uh, peanut brittle. Uh, yeah. the, the, right, the right. right. <laughs> All right. Well, that's gonna do it for this episode. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the '80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. 
You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Another way to reach us is through our social media pages. Search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating along with a stellar written review. And don't forget to follow us on Apple and Spotify as well. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.